Let's go in-depth on all things Hawkeyes. This is Hawk Central. On Des Moines Sports Station. 106.3 KXNO. Happy Thursday, Hawkeye fans, and thank you for joining us in this podcast-only edition of the Hawk Central Radio Show right here on 106.3 KXNO. My name is Chad Leistico, a sports columnist for the Des Moines Register. We should be back into our regular Wednesday time slot next week, but with the holiday week and travel back from Orlando, everything got pushed back a day. This week, I'll be joined by my Hawk Central teammate Tyler Tashman shortly to discuss all things from the Hawkeyes' discouraging and disconcerting 35 to nothing loss to Tennessee in the Cheez-It Citrus Hawkslayer Bowl. But first, uh, had a lot of requests this week, even before the game, for a cameo of a friend of the program. A uh, friend of mine, Kennington Smith, and uh, my old teammate at Hawk Central for two great years, uh, is joining us today to discuss a lot of things, and you'll see as the conversation goes on why all of this is relevant. Kennington, now with The Athletic, of course, a superstar, we feel blessed that you are joining our show once again. Uh, well, it's a blessing to still be able to have the opportunity to come on the show Um and for those who know and don't know, I have been following Hawk Central pretty closely this year. I've watched a good amount of Iowa games. Um, some may say that's a wise decision. Some may <laughs> that's not wise. Who you ask? It was a bit of a running joke on the Bama beat this year about my willingness to go out of my way to watch Iowa games. But I guess at this point, you can consider me a fan. So I have been keeping up a lot with, um, you know, your work chat, obviously, Tyler, who I thought had a great first year on the football beat. and I know he's turning away with basketball as well. So um, I actually got a chance to watch the Jesus Bowl from the Rose Bowl press box. Oh, yeah. And took a, a fair amount of ribbing from my colleagues about <laughs> Uh, as it was taking place. But, yeah, I'm glad to be on. Well, we will get to Iowa football conversation, and obviously no doubt about that because Iowa played an SEC opponent, and you cover the SEC now. Um, You cover Alabama for the Athletic. But I just kind of wanted to ask, because our our listeners love you and uh, you know always want to hear from you still, and uh, just kind of give our folks out there – a sense of what is uh what's life been like for you on the Alabama beat here the last four or five months? Yeah, I mean it is. I mean it's a monster. Of course, you're dealing with a program that popularity wise, you know, you could say it's probably comparable to some teams in the NFL. There's so much interest around the beat, whether it's local interest and you have national interest as well. Getting a chance to interact and deal with Nick Saban is an experience in itself, and Coming over to the Athletic is a lot different than working at a newspaper. Uh, you know, kind of coming in and having like a built in house kind of like support system. You know, we have the Hawk Central Twitter page and the register is like a local staple and all of that. So, got a lot of traction just kind of coming in and being associated with that brand. It's a little bit different when working for a national publication and trying to kind of like grassroots mm-hmm. your social following and all of that. But it's been, it's been dope. I've found new and creative ways to try to establish myself on the beat, doing some things here um, that I didn't do when I was uh, at the register. Um, kind of took from your DVR Monday, so I do a lot of film studies, which are a popular add-on to what I've been doing here. And it's just been nice to be closer to home, um, get a chance to see the SEC venues, and get a chance to cover a team that I grew up watching, not on the fan side, obviously, but got a chance to, to watch them a lot and be around a conference that I grew up watching. So 
it's been a really good first year. Um, all indications from my subscribers and my editors and my higher ups here that I had a great first year. So looking forward to what's next year. Yeah, no. Well, there was never a doubt about that from from our perspective. You're gonna have a great year. That's like uh, you know, Caitlin Clark. You know, she's gonna have a great game every night. So that was not a surprise. Um, I I do want to ask. So you said you watched the the Citrus Bowl from your press box at the Rose Bowl. Well, I of course watched the SEC title game from the Lucas Oil Stadium press box. So I was my thoughts were I was like, what? I wonder what Kennington is going through watching Georgia, the team he's followed his whole life, uh, face the team he's covering, Alabama. What I mean for whatever you can share. What is that? What was that like for you? Um. I, I just have no idea what emotions were kind of going through you, and it was obviously a great game too. Right. Well, it's funny you should say that because obviously I went to Georgia. So when I first announced that I got this job covering Alabama, the pushback, friendly of course, but the pushback <laughs> that I got from all of my friends and classmates were like, you're covering the opposition now, and you're with Bama now, you're <laughs> one of them, and da 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 and then when we get down to the SEC championship, the amount of calls, direct messages on social media app, text messages, call, every any type of form of communication that you could think of, the amount of those that I got of people asking me who I'm cheering for in this game was ridiculous. And a lot of people are saying, how are you going to manage it and all of that? But it really wasn't that bad, honestly. I think, as you know, when you're in the press box, any type of cheering, booing, anything like overly emotional, you could get kicked out the press box for stuff like that. So I kind of went into it just kind of pre-prepping myself, okay, just kind of keep your emotions under control. Um, but ultimately, I was going to be fine because I was going to be okay either way. Either Georgia was going to win and pursue a three-peat or Bama was going to win. And in my mind, I was going to the playoffs. So I was like, okay, mm-hmm. either Georgia's going to potentially three-peat or I'm going to go to the Rose Bowl. So it wasn't going to be a bad deal either way it went. And obviously, you know, Bama won. They played one of, if not their best game of the year in that game and then got a chance to, to go out to the Rose Bowl and catch a vibe. So it was it was all good. But circling back to my first antidote, the amount of text messages and calls that I got after <laughs> the game were also uh, I bet. pretty, yeah, were also kind of ridiculous as well. Just kind of, you know, my friends stuff lashing out like, we can't believe you're with them and you, you know, watch them beat us and da 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 da. But it was fun. <laughs> oh man, I uh, and and I, had, I felt for you too at the with the Rose Bowl just because that game it looked like Alabama had it, and then you got to switch what you're writing, and then it goes to overtime. I mean, it felt like we were. It felt like the to me watching that almost felt like the um, 2021 Nebraska game. Remember that when we were over there and Nebraska was yeah. winning like 21 to six, and all of a sudden like. Oh my God! I was going to win. The team I'm covering is going to win, and I had buried them in my what I had written so far. So it made me think of that. What was that like? Uh, you know, covering an overtime Rose Bowl in the playoff. Yeah, I mean, just an unbelievable experience. Um, the the venue itself, you you feel a certain energy when you're mm-hmm. there. It feels different than any sporting venue that I've been at, and. It was just kind of surreal. You take it in, and then the third quarter ends. You see the sunset. It's just kind of like somewhat emotional, just like a cool venue and a cool setting to be at. As far as the game itself, I honestly didn't even start writing until into the fourth quarter because it just you really had no idea which True. way the, the game was going. And then 
when Alabama goes up 17-13 and then Michigan three and outs on the next drive, in your mind it's like, okay, Bama's about to go down for the kill shot and this game is over. And then the game kind of turns on its head again. So I start writing, I delete it, and it's just kind of that back and forth. Like you're kind of writing two stories at once to hedge your bet to, to see what happens at the end. But just an unbelievable game, I think, from my perspective as somebody who's grown up in the South and watched a lot of Alabama football, that is a game that Alabama wins routinely. Mm-hmm. And to see them lose that game was really jarring. And to see the way that they lost the game at the end with kind of the bad snap and like the box play at the end, they really didn't even have a real chance to last play. So just kind of see the meltdown in the last four minutes was really uncharacteristic, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you would ask an Alabama fan, I think they would look at this season pretty much as a success. I don't know how much you got a chance to see where Bama was at the beginning of the year, oh, yeah. but they were, I mean, they, they were, were barely beating South Florida. There. Exactly. <laughs> it was a, there, there was a, a legitimate moment where Nick Saban could have lost the team in September. Mm-hmm. They had this crazy turnaround. They end up going to the SEC championship, winning it, obviously getting into the playoffs. So, I know there are probably going to be some people rolling their eyes right now, like, look at how many five and four stars that Alabama has. It's no surprise that they got to the point that they were. But getting a chance to actually like, watch the team and what they went through the beginning of the year to now, um, it was a pretty dramatic transformation. But the game itself was amazing, and um, you know, hopefully there's a lot more college football playoff appearances in my future. Last question on Bama, uh, and then we'll move into Hawkeye talk here. How did Caden Proctor do in his first year? Obviously, the the high profile decommit from Iowa commits to Alabama, uh, whatever it was, the day before signing day. It's a blur now, but uh, how did he fare in his first year? And he was the starting left tackle. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of it was highs and lows. Probably a lot more lows than highs. Um, Alabama's offensive line was a unit at the beginning of the year that many people expected to power the team to the national championship. And for large stretches of the year, it was one of, if not the worst unit on the team. And Caden's struggles had a lot to do with that. He gained a pretty significant amount of weight when he got on campus. And he was, you know, he said at media day, he was close to 400 pounds during spring practice. And he gets, yeah, he gets down to, maybe like 360-ish range when the season starts, but just carrying that extra weight. He had a lot of problems with speed rushers, SEC-level rushers, and it got to the point where Alabama had to put a tight end on his side to chip block almost every single play. And there were moments during the season where there was a left tackle rotation into SEC play where they were still trying to figure out that position. But he solidified it. He held it down. He did get better as the season went on. But if you saw that Michigan game, obviously those those early season struggles kind of you know reared his ugly head, and he had a rough game um, in route to Bama losing. But overall, I think optimism is really high for his future. There's not anybody in the program that has any concerns about what he's going to turn into. But you know, as we know, starting at left tackle at Power Five is a daunting task, and then doing it in the SEC is on on another level. So he did have a lot of struggles. He had some bright moments as well, but by all accounts, it does look like his future is very bright. Love you, Kennington. Uh, love your parents, but I do not love Atlanta traffic. That's the first time I've experienced it. I drove my family to Orlando. Okay, we went. Th- the plan, I was like, it's the day after Christmas. Like, it's not going to be that bad. It was like, I mean, it was probably like five hours to get 
approaching and to get around Atlanta. And even after that, it was not fun. <laughs> I don't know how you deal with it. That I lived in DC. I feel like this is worse. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It is one of the worst traffic cities. Has, in to, the be. has to be. Has to be in the top three. It it's got to be in the top one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like, you know, I don't want to, you know, LA, New York, whatever, but Atlanta is definitely up there. And the darn part about it, and you saw this, it's like six lanes. Yeah. All traffic. There's nowhere to go. Bumper, right. No matter what time of day it is, no matter what day it is, to your point, I mean, it's just constant. So in Atlanta, you just kind of like deal with it. It's just something that like you're born with. Mm. So this is something that's probably going to be jarring to the listeners. If you grew up in Metro Atlanta, you go to college and you get your full-time job in the city. If you were having a casual conversation with somebody and they would say, what's your commute time to work? And that person would respond with, about 45 minutes to an hour that the response back would be, Oh, that's not that bad. (laughs) That's what it's like living in Atlanta. So just account, account for best case scenario, 30 minutes driving upwards to an hour. I hope you didn't miss any exits while you were driving. You can add another 20, 25 minutes to your ETA if that happens, but it's, um, it's bad. Probably not getting any better either. Yeah. (laughs) Funny you should say that because I did miss an exit and all of a sudden my ETA goes like way up. Okay. And then, so then we try to find, my wife's helping me find a, a different route. We did end up exiting and we ended up like in these side roads forever and like going through these small towns, all this stuff. It was much more pleasant to do that than sit on the highway, but it still just took forever. Anyway, I took a different way the way on the way home, went through Bama. So went through Bama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Missouri, uh, came a totally different way. I did everything I could to avoid Atlanta on the way home. No offense to your hometown. <laughs> Not, none taken. People in the city will tell you that there's too many people in Atlanta and um, this doesn't look like it's going to be improving anytime soon. So you did right on the way home. <laughs> uh, anyways, well, let's talk about the Hawks uh, just for a minute because I, I thought your perspective would be unique here because you've covered Iowa, you've covered this program, this deficient offense in 2022, you've watched it in 2023. How did you kind of, were you, how surprised were you that Iowa lost 35 to nothing uh, to Tennessee, a team with a lot of speed? This was a, definitely uh, an eye opener, I feel like, uh, especially for the pace that Tennessee ran on offense. Just, I mean, Utah State ran the same thing, but it's not SEC athletes. So even with backups, I felt like. This is a little bit concerning for the future, just a little bit, um, even for the defense. Uh, and I thought it was very telling about the, the the gap between Iowa and the SEC, or the top of the SEC. Yeah, um, you know, to start, to start, I was very surprised at the margin of defeat. I think if Tennessee would have won the game, let's say, in a one-possession game, it wouldn't have been that surprising. But the margin was jarring because in this college landscape, Iowa is one of the few programs that legitimately prioritizes preparing for and winning their bowl games, no matter what level that they're at. So I'm thinking of it as a program that's not going to have any opt-outs, that has a singular focus on the bowl game to the point where they're not looking at the transfer portal, they're not doing other things that other programs would be doing while preparing for this bowl game. And then you have Tennessee, who had a ton of opt-outs, a ton of transfer outs, starting quarterback opts out of the bowl game the week of, it felt like I was going to be much more prepared for the game than it was. So that was the first jarring part. Um, we got a chance to kind of talk in that week leading up to the game. I told you, you know, the way that Tennessee lines up offensively with those wide splits, 
they were going to pretty much eliminate the defensive backs and kind of play box against box. And I think the way that they were able to control the pace of the game was really surprising. And, you know, to your point about those, those caliber of athletes, when you're welcoming in USC, UCLA, Oregon, Washington, those type of programs that play really up-tempo, and they have high-caliber athletes as well. I'm thinking of a team like Oregon that is right. mirroring themselves after an SEC program with Dan Lanning, and they're starting to get those caliber of athletes in. That's going to be a reoccurring theme for Iowa defenses moving forward, that they're going to have to continue to see these type of offenses. That doesn't include Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, the regular powers in the Big Ten. So I do think it was a bit of an eye-opener on both sides in terms of, okay, we are stepping into a new era of college football. This is what it's going to, to kind of like look like in our conference now. This is what it looks like across other conferences. What, are we, what do we need to do in terms of talent acquisition and philosophy to make sure that we can remain relevant in this next stage? But those are just kind of my, my early thoughts on, on that. And then, obviously, I'm sure we're going to get into the offense. But mm, that's the, way that, yeah, the, <laughs> the way that that ensued probably wasn't as surprising, but I still think it was equally jarring. Okay, so I appreciate your perspective on this. Again, somebody who's grown up watching SEC football, now covers SEC football, but has covered Iowa football and the the challenges that it has faced on offense. How do you, how would you grade, or maybe how would you uh, take Iowa in a new direction if you could just offer one bit of advice or one bit of analysis based on what you've seen and and where college football is going. What does Iowa need to do specifically in your mind to turn the page into a new type of offense if it was willing to? Yeah, I think the first thing is stabilizing the quarterback position. So I know we're talking about college, but I'm going to go to the NFL because, you know, I know you're an NFL guy. Mm Mm-hmm. You could not tell the story of this season without talking about the injuries at quarterback. Mm -hmm. And the teams that have been able to find success have been the ones that have been able to either go out and find a quarterback or the ones that had a solid backup in place. And when you look at the college and where it's going, 12-game regular seasons, but everybody's schedule is going to get a lot tougher with realignment. And then we're talking about playing a conference championship and potentially multi-playoff games you're going to need to have at least two formidable quarterbacks ready to go at any moment in case of an injury. And I think Iowa's lack of quarterback development is really what hurt this team this year. And as we, as we kind of talked about doing this podcast and I was thinking about Iowa's season, the biggest question that I have is how is it possible that Joe Labus went from somebody who was serviceable enough to win Iowa a bowl game against Kentucky to somebody who couldn't even play this upcoming year. There was such a where what 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 happened in terms of his progression or the development mm-hmm. that he took such a significant step back that he wasn't even a, a viable option this year. Um so that's what I would think about in terms of what it's gonna take for Iowa to take that next step. And you just kind of look at what Iowa is as a program. It's a top twenty five perennial program with an adequate offense. It would be a perennial playoff contender you would think that they would be able to, first of all, aim higher in terms of acquiring high school-level talent at quarterback, but then also being able to have some type of infrastructure to be able to develop quarterbacks year over in, because that's going to be a huge part of what happens across all college football. Every college football team is going to need multiple quarterbacks ready to go if they're serious about winning a championship. This isn't just an Iowa thing. This is 
every every school, right? I mean, mm-hmm. look at um, you know Florida State, for example, is a yeah. is an you know you know they lose their quarterback, they don't have faith in the you know the committee doesn't have faith in the backup, they lose their backup, their third string goes in, doesn't have an impressive performance against Louisville, they get left out of the the playoffs. So multiple quarterbacks is probably going to be where I will go to for Iowa and then just development at quarterback is going to be what is going to end up separating them from other teams moving forward I think yeah uh, wow that's that's really good analysis there Kennington I think uh, to answer your question you asked about Joe Labus I think the I think the answer I would give is stubbornness I think the Iowa um, I think Brian Ferentz as quarterbacks coach ended up being just too stubborn uh, coming from the top too. Um, but he no development under Brian, who was a self-proclaimed O-line coach and didn't know anything about quarterbacks. And then, um, you know, if Joe Labus maybe didn't do some right things in practice or personally, whatever it was uh, that soured him with coaches and they, they just stuck with the guy that was doing the right thing, showing, showing up to meetings, all that stuff. And um, so, yeah, I, th- I, I, that I never really even understood um, fully why you know you, again it's the what what would be the upside <laughs> question right I mean what does it hurt to try someone new and they just never did until uh, fourteen minutes fifteen seconds left in a twenty eight nothing game in the Citrus Bowl after Deacon Hill commits another turnover so um, yeah that was kind of it uh, and then uh, on that note Kennington last thing. <clears throat> Uh, our friend David Eicholt reported first that Ty Thompson of Oregon uh, visiting Iowa this weekend. He's the, he was the backup to Joe, uh, Joe Nix, Bo Nix, um, not Stevie Nix, Bo Nix. Uh, and he is going to be visiting the campus this week. Uh, I, I think that's an encouraging sign, don't you, that Iowa is willing to take a look outside of an, you know a, a damaged uh, quarterback in Cade McNamara. We don't know when he's going to be back. It would be great to have somebody like like Thompson, who's a five star prospect, on campus this spring. So to me, that answers a little. I mean, that's a little bit of an indication that Iowa wants to address that position. Yeah, one hundred percent. Just being able to to get a talent of that caliber on campus is always a good thing. I think it speaks to where Kirk Ferentz sees the quarterback room at right now. There's Got to be some level of confidence in Kay McNamara when he's fully healthy, but you know, unfortunately for him, he just hasn't been able to sustain that for multiple years now. So you have to be, you have to hedge your bet, and also to be able to have a productive spring practice and to be able to have a quarterback to come in there and at least push the room forward. I don't think, um, just from my vantage point, I don't think the optimism will be very high if I were to go into spring with just Deacon Hill and Marco Linez as their top two, you're going to need somebody else to come in there and just add something to the room. And I hope that the new offensive coordinator comes in, clean slates, you know, everybody in the quarterback room and gives everybody an adequate chance to rep equally with the ones. If Kay is not going to be in there consistently in the spring, let everybody have an equal opportunity with the first team to see what you have. And then once Kay gets healthy, you can have a true quarterback competition. That'll be my other caveat is, you know yeah. what you have in Kate McNamara as a leader. You feel like you kind of know what he is as a quarterback when he's healthy, but there is really no circumstance in my mind if you bring in Ty Simpson that you just give the job to Kate McNamara straight away. You have to have a legitimate competition and see who your best option is. Yeah, we will see if Iowa uh, can obtain his services. Uh, that will be very interesting. Uh, last thing, Kennington, are you keeping up with Caitlin Clark? Yeah, 100%. And not only am I, but like 
now nowadays in my group chat with my friends they're dropping caitlin clark highlights before i can (laughs) that just kind of goes to show the type of impact that she's had on the game a year ago at this time i couldn't convince any of them to watch an iowa women's basketball game because of just you know the the old stigma that there is about women's sports about how it's not exciting this and the third and i'm just kind of gassing her up just because i cover iowa and now they're like watching iowa games consistently so um, definitely keeping awesome. up with it. And uh, the the women's team is, they're rolling. They look good right now. I don't know what their exact record is, but I know they only have one loss. Yeah, I believe they're 14-1 and one, uh, going into uh, Friday night's game against Rutgers. So anyway, well, uh, big games ahead for the women. Uh, big stretch here ahead for the Hawkeyes in football in January. And uh, don't really want to talk about basketball right now. <laughs> Men's basketball, <laughs> I mean. But thanks for joining us. This was a lot of fun, Kennington. And um, best to you and your family. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you for for having me on. Um, you know, all the best uh, to you, your wife, your your two kids who are rock stars, and um, you know, I'll be uh, continuing to follow along, even if even the men's basketball team. I'm gonna be continuing to 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 follow all the coverage. So can't wait till Kirk hires a new offensive coordinator and all the conversation that's gonna surround that. That'll be fun. Well, uh, I'm sure we'll have an emergency pod uh, whenever that happens here in the coming weeks. So, and thanks for your uh, three word headlines all year too. Those were you were. Very, very, very solid and reliable on the three-word headlines this year. Really good. Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it. You know, it's kind of one of those things where, like, unfortunately, a lot of the times either Iowa's games are going on the same time as Bama's or, like, Bama's right after or before. So sometimes I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't get them in. But the, the ones you, that I did get in, I appreciate that you were able to, to yeah. put them on the show. No, you were undeterred, man. Uh, you appreciate it very much. And I know our listeners – uh, you know, we're, we're excited to hear from you as well and uh, appreciate your perspective today, my man. And um, good luck. Uh, well, um, hopefully we'll see you down the road. So maybe uh, one day in a perfect world, Alabama can come up to Kinnick for a playoff game. Perfect. Maybe or maybe Iowa comes down to, to Tuscaloosa. But I'd be okay with that. I'd be okay yeah. with that. We'll get some, uh, some barbecue, something like that. So that'd be fun. For sure. All right, coming up next, our 2023 season obit for the Hawkeye football team and looking ahead to who can fix this offense with myself and Tyler Tashman on Hawk Central Podcast Edition here on 106.3 KXNO. Welcome back to Hawk Central Radio here on 106.3 KXNO Podcast Edition of the Hawk Central Radio Show. I'm your host, Chad Leistico, columnist for the Des Moines Register. Happy to welcome in Tyler Tashman to talk all things Hawkeyes including a little men's hoops. Uh, we did uh, touch on w- women's hoops in our first segment just a little bit, uh, but uh, we're going to hit football pretty hard here. Tyler continues uh, to do an amazing job uh, for us uh, on all things, uh, really holding down the basketball beat right now and uh, looking forward to uh, an, a strong 2024 together, Tyler. Yeah, most definitely. And I was actually uh... – I went to my first women's game at Carver when Iowa played Minnesota, mm-hmm. and and that was, the atmosphere was fantastic. It was a lot of fun to be there. Yeah, appreciate that. And uh, you were up at Wisconsin the other night for the men's game, and uh, I know you had some Fran McCaffrey availability earlier today. We will get to basketball as this show goes on, but uh, to kind of continue what myself and Kennington Smith talked about, let's talk some Hawkeye football uh, coming out of the Citrus Bowl, Tyler. Uh, we did our post-game show, obviously, with Dargan, so those that missed it, uh, check out our Hawk Central YouTube page. But uh, I just kind of wanted to start off with the quarterback position because, uh, as we mentioned in our first segment, 
Interesting transfer portal news going on. Nothing really going out other than a backup long snapper. But uh, Oregon uh, backup quarterback Ty Thompson visiting the Hawkeye campus this weekend, uh, first reported by 247 Sports. Uh, what do you make of uh, the fact that I was still uh, looking in the portal, I think pretty seriously, at the quarterback position? I'm a, I'm a <clears throat> excuse me, pretty strong advocate for whatever needs to be done one way or the other, Iowa needs to get better at the quarterback position. And I don't think that's some wild statement. I think I feel like that's pretty, you know, most fans would probably agree with that. Um, but whether it's internal growth this off season, whether it's uh, getting guys fully healthy, which isn't, you know, that's in coming back from injuries is its own kind of uh, beast. But or looking into the transfer portal, which it seems like Iowa is not necessarily shying away from, but there needs to be the the quarterback room needs to get shored up because you know we saw especially this past season how when you don't have a, a backup plan that's really ready to go, how disastrous it can be. And and Iowa still certainly uh, found ways to win, but the, the quarterback position just held it down so much and so if whether that be getting Marco Linez in, in better shape to a if Cade McNamara isn't ready to go week one Marco Linez is, is going to be comfortable being that guy and can be be at least average competent be able to uh you know limit mistakes and make the throws that are needed or whether it's going in the portal it there there needs to be some a better a option a better b option a better c option because the last few seasons, the quarterback has just been a, just a carousel and there just hasn't been good play from that position. Right. Yeah, and you can't count on James Rezar to come in and uh, as a true freshman in June to uh, you know make your quarterback room better necessarily. So I like this. Obviously, you know the the if this uh, you know if they end up getting Ty Thompson, let's say he's a five, I mean five star prospect out of uh, Gilbert, Arizona, um, that would be that would be significant. Uh, for the program, that would be significant to somebody to take a lot of spring reps uh, with Marco Linez and presumably, obviously, Deacon Hill as well. But um, you just have to think that Iowa's got to get a lot better at the number two and number three positions, just as you said. If Cade McNamara is number one, um, but who's to say, you know, if they bring in Ty Thompson or if Marco Linez has a big spring, you know, who's to say one of those guys can't be the starter uh, come? September or whenever uh, Iowa's first game is uh, of the season. So I like that. Um, You know, a little bit about Thompson. I mean, he has some ties to – a little bit of ties to John Budmeyer again. uh, There's that name again. And uh, Paul Chris both recruited him uh, while they were at Wisconsin. I know Iowa kicked the tires on Thompson as well. He ends up at Oregon with – has been there for three years. His career numbers are not bad. 42 of 66 for 456 yards, six touchdowns, four interceptions. So that's a 64% completion rate. Same as Cade McNamara, pretty much, who came into Iowa. So, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, bring talent in here. And he can obviously, uh, you know, he's 6'4", 224, so kind of prototypical size. You know, from what I've heard in early stages here, you know, maybe he's not, you know, Throw reads and and things like that, or and progressions are not necessarily his strong suit at this point. But again, you get a new OC in here, a new quarterbacks coach. 
maybe you can use this spring to really develop some guys because I feel like that was the big thing. Well, one of many things, but one of the things that Iowa really lost with Brian Ferentz as quarterback's coach is you just didn't get quarterback development. Nobody got better. And I, I think, you know, something that's interesting to watch, <clears throat> excuse me, as, as all this kind of unfolds during the offseason is what what impact does having Cade McNamara in the room have on on the appeal of coming to Iowa? Because if there's a guy like Ty mm-hmm. Thompson or, or someone else who wants to come in and know that with little resistance, they're going to have the starting job. Um, I think there's some hesitation for I with, with that landing spot being Iowa because you know you have Cade McNamara there and there's no guarantee Cade is going to be healthy for Week One, but it's gonna it, it it's gonna be some legit competition to get on the field. So you know I don't. It, it's not like it's a sure thing that if you come to Iowa as a quarterback as a transfer, you're going to be getting the starting job. There's a possibility, but it but it's not if it's a guy like Ty Thompson who is kind of waited his turn at, a, at another university and, and probably wants to come in and play immediately. I don't know if Iowa can guarantee that. Um, and, and if Cade McNamara can get healthy and he can play the kind of just solid brand of football that Iowa needed this year, um, which he did in, in the season that Michigan won the Big Ten championship that he was there, I think that's all Iowa needs. But there's just a lot of question marks of whether he'll be able to do that because we didn't really see that this season. Um, he's, this is his second consecutive season cut short due to an injury. Uh, we're not even sure if he will be ready. So there, there's there's risk with it, and there's there's also potential reward if, if he can be that guy for Iowa. But I'm just curious to see if, how having him in the room might affect how I was viewed as a potential landing spot for other quarterbacks. No, definitely. And I think that's, that's something that Iowa needs. will have to, you know, if it does want to bring Ty Thompson, for example, I mean, that's a five star. You, I think you'd be pretty happy if you're a Hawkeye fan, if he does decide to come to Iowa. Um, but I think that's something if you, if you do want him to come here, you do have to have the offensive coordinator in place probably pretty soon. Uh, uh, second semester at Iowa classes start on January 16th. So that's, you know, 12 days from right now. You know, if, if someone's going to transfer from Oregon to Iowa uh, in the next 12 days, you know, they would, I'm sure, like to know who the OC is going to be. And I'm sure that would help. So maybe the time, for, you know, the timetable here is, is accelerating quite a bit. Um, and uh, kind of the necessity to make a decision is, is uh you know the clock's ticking I guess I should say on that front so um and yeah I mean how would you how do you think Cade McNamara is reacting to this news I mean is he you know we can't be inside of his head we've hardly talked to him this year but uh, you know you'd have to think you know as a competitor yeah that kind of you know not happy about it but you also have to kind of understand the reality is you know you, you need two good quarterbacks you can't just have one. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're Iowa, you have to plan as if Cade is not going to be ready. Yeah, right? exactly. Because, because then you you might be in the same situation as uh, you were this season, and, and I don't think a lot of fans want to see Deacon Hill at QB1 come the first week of next season. So you, you have to – and look, this isn't the NFL where 
someone gets hurt and you can pick up Joe Flacco and he's <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, slinging it around like it was a decade ago or whatever. Like you, your quarterback room is what your quarterback room is. Um, and you have to rely on the guys you have. So Iowa has to find a way to make that room better. Um, you know, whether that be internal improvement or, or looking elsewhere. So, um, and I actually, I find it pretty impressive that I was able to get Ty Thompson on campus without having an OC in place. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to be able to get him on there with a lot of uncertainty, uh, that I think that's a, a, a promising sign. Um, at the same time is not only do you want to have that OC in place so guys that are potentially coming in know who it is, but also for the guys that are on the roster now that may have to decide, hey, is this an OC that I want to stick around with or am I going to um, you know, potentially look at other options, not implying there's anybody specifically, but that's just kind of the nature of the business when uh, you know a new coach comes into play. So um, that that is one of the dominoes. Uh, it feels like more on defense. It's who are who, who are the, who are the guys that are going to stay uh, at Iowa versus go in the NFL on offense. It's more of okay, get the OC in place, and then things can kind of work themselves out. And it's if Iowa does not, you know, get a quarterback before January sixteenth, for example, they could still get one after spring practice. Let's say more information comes in on you know Cade's recovery process. You see what Marco does. You see what Deacon does. Um, but you don't want to wait. You don't want to wait till June or, or late May to bring in a quarterback, right? I mean, you don't want to have to. Uh, ideally, you don't want to, you know, have to make a panic acquisition. Then a lot of the quarterbacks are already going to be accounted for at that point. Um, it would be great to have somebody in here for spring practice, somebody to compete with uh, Marco and Deacon Hill. I mean because Cade's not going to be be out there for spring practice. So, again, it would be – it almost feels like Tyler, like last spring, ends up being sort of, as you look back on it, such a big loss because you didn't have Cade McNamara. You basically had Deacon Hill and Joe Labus, and I feel like that was not productive. That was not productive enough for that quarterback's room. And now, if you could bring in a Ty Thompson – you know, a new OC, which you're going to have an OC, obviously, and obviously a new quarterback's coach as well, and that might be the same person. But you've at least got fresh sets of eyes. Brian Ferentz is gone. Spencer Peters is gone. Um, you know, you, it's just a fresh start, and I feel like a lot of motivation would be in that room to perform. Here's the, the thing I guess I'm caught up a little bit on is that you know, depending on what Iowa decides to do, the the thing that worries me a little bit, or I don't know how, the thing that worries me is the decision-making to keep Deacon in there for as long as Iowa did, which was basically until the last possible second to put, you know, Marco, to give Marco Linus a chance, is that it, it, it almost kind of breaks down some of that, like, trust of is Iowa going to be able to handle a crucial position with the, the way that it needs to be handled, you know, like, because right. um, at times it just felt like they weren't, they were, it just felt like a disconnect. Like they, they weren't seeing maybe the things that everyone else was, or, and again, maybe it was, they, maybe it was, they were seeing things we weren't like during practice. And I know that might've been kind of overblown because 
how you perform in games a lot uh, is important, but I don't know. It just, it, it, it brings a little bit more doubt into my mind of like, okay, it seems pretty obvious to us. The quarterback room needs to get better. You maybe think about uh, bringing someone in. You maybe think about making sure that the guys develop in the room, get better, but maybe that's because it's obvious to us doesn't mean that that's the route that Iowa would necessarily take. So that just, I don't know, that just brings a little bit more concern into my mind of like maybe they feel maybe they feel comfortable with the the, the growth Deacon Hill can make over the offseason and maybe he will be maybe he will make strides, but I just I just don't see a scenario right now where having him as your game one starter in twenty twenty four is beneficial for Iowa. No question. Um yeah, plenty of time to, to continue this quarterback conversation. Who knows? It could be evolving pretty soon here. Um, depending on what Ty Thompson ends up doing. A very, very pivotal visit this weekend, um, honestly, uh, potentially for, for the shape of this quarterback's room. Um, let's talk about guys that are coming back, guys we know will be here in the spring, and that includes Jamari Harris, who yesterday, Tyler, uh, decided he would return for his sixth-year senior season. We are uh, pretty confident at this point that Sebastian Castro uh, we'll join him at some point, perhaps even uh, by the time you're listening to this podcast. But let's talk about Harris. Uh, certainly, you know, especially if you discount uh, Cooper DeGene coming back, which I think is a very low percentage still at this point. Uh, getting Harris back really, uh, that, that's key because he started playing, he was playing some pretty good football most of this year. That felt to me kind of just like a, a way to stabilize the defensive backs room with kind of, you don't know whether Cooper DeGene is coming back. So now if he leaves, you have a really experienced guy. Jamari Harris has, has been in the program a while. Uh, he, he's had, you know, he's, he's been through the rigors of the big 10. Um, so to me, that just kind of feels like a way to, I was, you know, cause if, if Jamari were to leave and Cooper were to leave, then defensive back is going to be a position you're looking at heading into next season that really kind kind of there's a lot of question marks and needs to shore itself up. But now with Jamari coming back, that just kind of adds stability to the room. And then you look at maybe, uh, I mean, him and Deshaun Lee combined for a pretty good duo when uh, Cooper DeGene was hurt. And Deshaun Lee, uh, you know, started the first two games of the season when Jamari was suspended. So uh, I think you feel with him coming back, regardless of whether Cooper decides to come back or go, I think you feel you're in a pretty good spot, a defensive back with Deshaun Lee. Then you also have, you know, guys behind him, TJ Hall, Devin Hilson, um, you, you know, John Nestor as a guy that's mm-hmm. uh, really young. I, I think, I think you feel like much more comfortable with where the defensive backs are. Just the simple fact of, of an experienced guy like Jamari coming back. Yeah. And then you got Phil Parker. Phil Parker in that room too that uh helps uh alleviate some a, concerns. He's gonna have a I mean, I would he's gonna have a great time coaching next season with the guys they've had coming back so far on defense. Like Yeah. I would think. And the promise of Cohen Entringer, like you said, John yeah. Nestor. You know, we got a little bit of Deshaun Lee out there and then um you know, there's uh, there's guys we didn't get to see this year that, that did red shirt uh that are pretty exciting as well. So uh yeah, it's gonna be it's always fun to cover spring ball, but that's a long ways away. Uh, obviously, the focus remains on the offense. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about offensive coordinator already. 
But uh, I don't know. Probably going to happen third week. He's, he said he'd like to have something finalized by the third week of January, which, again, would be the first week of classes. So that time frame all makes sense, Tyler. Uh, I don't know. You wrote about this a little bit. Let's let's kind of reflect on the year now as it's closed, uh, this 10-4 and 4 season. How, how are you going to remember this Hawkeye team? <laughs> how much time do you have? Yeah. <laughs> No, I, yeah, I mean, it it's like Iowa season was. It, it was really complex, and um, it would it seem pretty simple at the end of the regular season. Like, this was an Iowa team that just adversity after adversity responded. I mean, everything they had to deal with, whether that be the, the sports wagering investigation, uh, the, the Brian Ferentz news, invalid fair catch controversy, um you know, just all the injuries that they had to deal with to, to major guys, especially on the offensive side of the ball. And yet Iowa still makes the Big Ten championship. You know, they got to, you know, in the final season of uh, the divisionals and divisional play in, in, in Big Ten, uh, they got to, you know, what their goal was in, in the Big Ten championship. I, I think the postseason made things a little bit, I don't know, I think it was the fact that it just wasn't close. Like Iowa right. just got just got destroyed in both games really i mean i guess the, the michigan game was a little bit closer or felt a little closer but um i feel like that kind of put a little it, it dampened a little bit what iowa accomplished because it, it it was a it was a pretty clear reminder that iowa is far or i don't say far there's a there's a there's a pretty wide gap between iowa and the elite teams especially in the Big Ten, but also just kind of more nationally. Um, against ranked teams this season, Iowa didn't score a single point. Mm. Lost to Penn State, lost to Michigan, lost to Tennessee. None of the games were particularly close. So um, this team, I think, you know, should be remembered for they had, I mean, it was incredible excitement. I mean, the, the, the Cooper to Gene uh, punt return against Michigan State, the one that did count, all the games that just were nail biters that that went down to the wire um, that Iowa was able to pull out, but I think the especially the last two games of the season kind of exposed the fact that I would I want and I do not want to say that it was like fraudulent wins or anything, but they it, it just it just it just was apparent what the gap was between the really elite teams and where Iowa was like, maybe, maybe some of those close games was more of Iowa getting themselves into trouble than it was, um, you know, actually down, uh, more than them fighting their way out of it. So maybe they, they got themselves into it, were able to get out of it, but maybe that was more of a representation of the, the kind of flawed team that they were. So I don't know. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> that's, that's all I got to say. Yeah, the uh, the season was defined for me by the the offensive coordinator thing. Just way back, the drive for three twenty five, and just how far short short they fell uh, from that. Ended up with two hundred sixteen points for the season. Needed three fifty if they wanted to average that twenty five. So it didn't even come close at all. I mean, that's just such a low point total. Only Kent State uh, in FBS had had fewer points than Iowa, fifteen point four points per game. Um, and I, you know, as somebody who's, who covered the end of the 2014 season on this beat, you know, that was a low point in the program at the end of that season, they finished seven and six with a lot of high expectations. Uh, you know, the Hawkslayer bowl point 1.0, this is Hawkslayer 2.0. Uh, 
as I wrote the other day. And I think ever since that that loss in the Tax Slayer Bowl, so it's been nine years now, I mean, I would say this, I mean, even as good as the defense was, I don't know if this team could beat any of the previous eight Hawkeye teams. Um, you know, I just, it's hard for me to get to that point. I think, I think that's how far the offense has fallen, how bad things have gotten. And so um, I'm not going to remember this team um, even in the same level of, as the 2021 team. Even they, they overcame adversity, yes. Give them all that credit. But even the 2021 team had the top 10 road win at Iowa State. They had the top five ro- uh, win against Penn State where they go to number two in the country. They had big moments there. And even in the bowl game, even after you had the the gut punch uh, of the Big Ten title game against Michigan, uh, they came close in the Citrus Bowls. It was a 20 to 17 game. They played well. They, you know, their offense looked pretty good. This was just um, kind of a disastrous finish. So I feel like I feel like this team took a big step down in terms of how I'm gonna view them historically. Yeah, they got 10 wins, but I don't Personally, I don't think the two thousand. I don't think it could beat the two thousand seventeen Hawkeye team, um, and that was an, an eight and five team. I don't know if they could beat last year's team, which was an eight and five team. So, um, you know, just need to be fixed on offense. We know that we've been discussing that, and um, you know, we're going to be talking about that for the next eight or nine months. So, with that, Tyler, let's go into some some Hawkeye men's hoops talk. Uh, man, I was. You know, I watched. Uh, I tried to watch as much as I could while I was driving back home. Um, I was in the state of Mississippi while I was watching Iowa Wisconsin the other night. They fall eighty three to seventy two. You were up there in Madison, so you had a much better perspective than I did. I was mostly listening to the audio and and trying to watch at stoplights and whatnot. But uh, ah, what do you make of this team? Zero and three now in the Big Ten. Uh, I mean, I don't even know where to begin here. So you take it. You you might have been the only person in Mississippi watching that game. Um, <laughs> yeah, viewership <laughs> one. Viewership yeah. one. Yeah, you're really boosting the uh, yeah the viewership down in the south there. But um, yeah. So I think there was strides forward in that Wisconsin game because they they look Wisconsin's like Wisconsin's a good team. They're going to have a chance to compete for mm-hmm. uh, you know I think in the top of the Big Ten and Iowa. Unlike the Iowa State game, unlike the Purdue game, uh, they they had a much better effort. The the thing that I got hung up on a little bit was I'm I'm interested to see when when you have two really just contrasting styles like Wisconsin and Iowa, um, you know, what does that produce? And the first half was a style that was much more geared to what Wisconsin likes to do. It was um, it was pretty it was a lot slower, not as many points. It was tied 32 at 32 at half, so Iowa actually kind of weathered that a little bit pretty well and survived it. Um, the second half was geared toward what you would think would have helped Iowa, and it, you know, it was lots of points scored, a uh, much faster pace, but Iowa got outscored by Wisconsin, but basically beat at... They gave up 51 by, points in the second yeah. half. That's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. and, that, and that, that was to me was like a sign of the good thing here is that Iowa knows what its identity is, and that's to play fast, that's to get up and down the court, good offense, do enough on defense. Um, the bad news is that this team hasn't grown into that identity yet. And, and to me, 
letting Wisconsin outpace you, outrun you, outscore you for a program that slows it down and you know half court plays at a snail's pace to get outrun by Wisconsin that that was an indication that Iowa is still it's still growing into its identity. It's still the the I guess where I tried to describe it was like if if you have a pitcher in baseball who uh, gets gets batters out by throwing you know just a missile of a fastball. When you lose some of that velocity, it's not going to be really effective. Um, Iowa has doesn't quite have its fastball right now. It, it's not able to outscore people and and just outrace people um, like it has as a program. Not saying I think they can get there this season. They're just not quite there yet. Zero um, three in the Big Ten. Iowa was in the exact same spot last season. They, they started the Big Ten 0-3, still ended up making the NCAA tournament. Two seasons ago, they started the Big Ten 1-3, and and they still and they ended up winning the Big Ten tournament. So, uh, Fran McCaffrey's teams have turned around, turned it around. I think this team is geared to do the same because they are pretty young. Uh, they, I mean, they have four freshmen uh, in the regular rotation. Uh, but but there there does need to be strides forward and and some significant growth over the next few weeks here. Yeah, I mean Wisconsin is a little faster than they used to be for sure, and uh, yeah, they just did it better than Iowa did. Um, I asked this question on Twitter um, the other night. I think it was uh, I remember being in a stoplight and then uh, tweeting it. So I said, "Is I is Owen Freeman Iowa's best player?" So uh, then after I did that, all the all the responses I got. I mean, I would say 98% of them were like, yes, absolutely. No question. He is. Uh, now, Tony Perkins probably had the best statistical game of the night. I mean, 25 points for, for Tony. Um, and Owen ends up 14 points, 13 rebounds. I don't know. How would you have answered that question, Tyler? Or maybe you did and I didn't see it. I sound like I was reading while I was driving, but I saw later. <laughs> yeah. Is he the best uh, no, player? I, no, I, I think that's a fair question. And I think um, he is, I would put the, the kind of upper echelon of him, Peyton Sanford, and Ben Cricky. I think those are pretty clearly I Ahead of Perkins? I, I think you could put Perkins in that group if he's able to be consistent. That, that's the biggest thing for him is that, I mean, he played great against Wisconsin, but it's being able to do that on a consistent basis. Um, but the fact that Owen, I mean, he's playing this way as a freshman, and not a lot of freshmen, especially big men in the Big Ten Conference, where there's a lot of good big men, uh, put up the numbers that he's putting up. And he had a double-double against one of the best front courts uh, in the Big Ten. And I think, you know, there is a lot of discussion right now about how do you feel about the Iowa men's basketball program, the way it's pointed, uh, excitement around what, what Fran McCaffrey has going. I think Owen Freeman is, is a legit reason to be excited about the future because, um, and actually Fran kind of mentioned this today, that media availability is like he's been really good, but I think it's all it's also pretty obvious that there's more in there, and I totally agree. I think this, I think he's just starting to scratch the surface of, you know, what he's doing now as a freshman. If, if he makes a jump to a sophomore season, he'll be a premier big man in the Big Ten. If he if he makes a jump to his junior season, I think he could be, become one of the premier big men uh, in the nation. So him, Brock Harding, especially the you know freshman class, 
there's there's reason to be optimistic about the future because I think if these guys continue to grow, they can be a real nice foundation. Definitely. Um, I don't love the lineups right now, and I know that's easy to criticize when you're losing. So uh, that can be a crutch. Um, but I w- my point being, you've got DeSante Bowen and Brock Harding, two pretty exciting young pieces. I like, well, I like what DeSante brings to the table. I know a lot of fans like what Brock Harding brings to the table. Um, I don't, I would like to see, and you tell me where I'm wrong, because you've watched this team way more closely than I have this year. Uh, I have not covered that many games yet. Uh, plan to, but you know, been, been busy with football and, and honestly women's basketball. Um, DeSante played 13 minutes the other night. Brock Harding played 11. Okay. That's Patrick McCaffrey played 26 and a half minutes. I would put Harding and Bowen at the one in a rotation type deal. I would put Perkins at the two, Sanford at the three, Freeman and Cricky. That would be my primary six guys right now. And then uh, certainly sprinkle in McCaffrey, Dix, you know, maybe in Dembele, of course, uh, Price Sanford, you know, here and there. But uh, I would just like to see more of those two point guards is what I'm saying. And I think that's a way you could do it. Yeah, I think Brock Harding was Iowa's best option at point guard. He, he is... 11 minutes. He only played 11 minutes the yeah. other day. He, he has a dynamic passing ability. And he, and he just does a great job of sharing the ball. You're going to have some mistakes. But that's just kind of... Just, you know, that's, that's how he plays. He's going to take some risks. Um, you know, he's going to be a little bit flashier, but I think that he adds something at point. He's, I, he's only, he's, I was only true point guard because I don't think Tony Perkins is, I, I would, I would probably view him as more of a two guard. That's what I mean. And he's starting yeah. at the one. Same thing. And look, and, and Fran McCaffrey has tinkered with this too. Uh, DeSante started the season at the one, but even then DeSante is more of a combo guy, more of a, you know, a, a slasher, a guy that can mm-hmm. get downhill that isn't going to facilitate as much. Uh, Josh Dick started one game, which it, it, it really, it, it was a disastrous few minutes. Um, and then, and then after that game was where we got to the starting lineup that I was at now, where you have Tony at the one. That's you know Owen Freeman in there, Ben Cricky, uh, Peyton Sanford, and Patrick McCaffrey. But no, I really do think that uh, Brock is is Iowa's best option at point guard because he just he's he's I was only really true facilitating point guard and he can he creates that like no one else can create for Iowa. So I mean it is difficult because there is depth on this team which which is better than last season because that was a real issue. But um you know Fran McCaffrey definitely has to figure out how he's gonna use that depth. You know do you shorten the rotation who who gets more minutes uh, you know, because on one game someone might get a bunch of minutes, the other game they might not. So um, it's I, I don't I think it's a good problem to have, but it's something that you kind of have to prioritize. The guys that that should be getting the the most minutes are in fact getting getting those minutes. I mean, I like I like when Bowen's on the court. Um, I I just want to see more of him just because he can score, and uh, I know you know I know defense comes into play, but I was. No matter who's in there, they're not playing playing a ton of defense. So, um, you know, I'd like to just I don't know, just uh, 
We'll see. Big game against Rutgers. Like, what do you what do you need to see? Is this like a must win for the Hawkeyes? Rutgers, uh, eleven a.m. Saturday at Carver Hawkeye. Probably going to have the best crowd of the year to date, I would guess, uh, just because they haven't had uh, you know great opponents or great crowds yet. But it's a Saturday at Carver. Fans will come out for that. Must win. So, I would I would say nearly. The reason I, I wouldn't say it is is because. Iowa actually has a really good chance these next three games to to get to three and three in the Big Ten to kind of get moving in the right direction because they go home against Rutgers, home against Nebraska, and at Minnesota. That that's mm-hmm. three. Given what they have faced and what they will face, that is pretty forgiving. So mm-hmm. I think Iowa cannot go worse than two and one in that stretch. If they lose two of these three or more, I think you look at it as uh, it, it's hard. To, it, it looks pretty bleak moving forward. But if I were, I think at, at worst, if they go two and one over this three game stretch, um, then you then you have a little bit of momentum. You feel like the the ship is kind of moving in the right direction. And, and the difficult thing about the Wisconsin game is that I think there was strides forward, but because of the opponent, because of where it was, and because it was a loss, it, it's, it's hard to see that as much, right? Because you can, you can make progress and still lose games, and not that everything is like a moral victory or anything, but I think these next three games is where you need to see that progress show up in the win column. Iowa women play Friday night, 5 p.m. at Rutgers, so it's a Rutgers-Iowa hate weekend. Uh, did you get a chance to see... Uh, Caitlin Clark's winning shot. I know you were in post-game coverage, so uh, but I'm sure you saw it on social media. Um, man, unbelievable. Yeah, I did. I was, uh, you know, doing stuff after the men's game, but I, I did see the shot on social media. And a couple of things that stand out to me is, one, this is what I kind of wrote about after the Minnesota game where she broke some more records is like, it's, it's, it's basically become a commonality where she does something that's like, oh, she broke a record or did something kind of like she's she's made that she's normalized that, which is an indication of just kind of how rare of a player that she is. And I know there's talk, you know, is she coming back next season? Is she not? Like, I think just appreciating what is right now and trying not to get too caught up in that, um, you know, is as a fan, I think that you know I'd advise that, but. Also, the fact that the, the the game winner is like everyone knew that like she was going to get the ball. Everyone knew that she was going to shoot it. Like I think it would have been a shock to most people if someone other than her took that shot. The fact that she was able to get open, get off the shot, and that was like that was a difficult shot. That was not uh, an easy shot by any means, and she still knocked it through. So um, yeah, I mean, it just it feels like it's. The, the legacy you you just can kind of see growing right in front of your eyes. Yeah, no question. Uh, just uh, encourage people to just cherish all these moments that you're getting to watch uh, greatness uh, in Iowa City. Uh, talked for about 20 minutes about this on our Legends and Listeners show earlier today that I did uh, with Scott. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's fun to watch. We'll be talking a lot more women's hoops in the weeks to come no doubt about a big game against indiana your hoosiers uh tyler on january 13th that's gonna be that's big time that and i i'm i kind of feel like there's a little in, in women's basketball there uh iowa and indiana are are it's a little rivalry start definitely 
yeah. form. And especially the way, I mean, last season, both of those games in the regular season were really good. Indiana won when it was at Assembly Hall. And then, of course, Caitlin Clark hit the game winner um, at Carver Hawkeye, the final regular season game of the season. But I feel like that, that's a nice little rivalry that's developing in the Big Ten. Yeah, Iowa at Rutgers, you would think they'd win that. Then they're at Purdue, and then it's home against the Hoosiers. So the Hawkeyes could be 16-1 and going into that Indiana matchup. So uh, fun stuff. Uh, lots of hoops ahead, but we've got uh, this OC thing kind of over our shoulders as well, Tyler. And I will add, too, with the um, the Indiana-Iowa matchup, Indiana, I think, has looked a little bit more vulnerable than people expected this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've, they've only lost, uh, they played tonight, or which is Thursday night. At, at the time we record this, they've only lost one game like Iowa, but uh, they have not been as dominant as they were at this point last season, and, and that might be a product of they lost Grace Berger, who was, Really, uh, you know, their rock ball handler, uh, the heartbeat of, of their team um, outside of Mackenzie Holmes. But uh, they actually, when Grace was hurt last season, they performed really well without her. It seems like, you know, her being gone is a little, has maybe in, impacted the team a little bit more than people thought. But, um, you know, I think I think it's, it's going to be a really even matchup. And, and the, the atmosphere, I would think, is just going to be ridiculously good. <laughs> no question. All right. Thanks, Tyler. Appreciate you. See you soon. For Tyler Tashman, this is Chad Leistico of the Des Moines Register saying good night, and we will talk to you next Wednesday night here on Hawk Central 106.3 KXNO.